Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 13, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Now that the midterm elections are past us, work ahead on the public policy arena. Everyone's got marching orders of some kind. Take your pick. Make yourself and all us proud. And, and eaters, how did it feel voting last Tuesday? Felt pretty good, didn't it? Keep it up. Today, my first guest will be Colby Lentz, organizer and legal advocate with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and the Transgender Advocacy Group, who is in a dash to have Governor Brown commute as many sentences as possible before he crosses the finish line, his fourth and final term as governor of California. In the second half, we'll hear from UCI political science professor Kristen Renwick Monroe about the backlash to hashtag MeToo with prescriptions toward a constructive resolution. We'll be right back after station break. The midterm elections may be past us, but the work is never, ever done. Witness breathlessly applied activists like Colby Lentz, who during this segment will raise the profile of criminalized survivors of intimate partner abuse who are in increasingly precarious legal situations. Colby Lentz will talk about their work in trying to get relief for these people, especially before Governor Brown leaves office. Colby Lentz is an organizer and legal advocate with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and the Transgender Advocacy Group. Thanks to Jane Stover at UCI Law School's End Family Violence Center, I had the privilege of learning a mother load from Colby Lentz at a panel entitled Surviving Prison and Ice Detention, Freeing Criminalized Survivors. Colby is the co-founder and organizer of Survived and Punished. Previously, they were a researcher at Real Search Action Youth Justice Coalition, and before that, a consultant at Generative Somatics. Their publications include Survived and Punished, Survivor Defense as Abolitionist Praxis, a collaborative toolkit created by Survived and Punished, and Love and Protect. Roadmap for Change, Federal Policy Recommendations for Addressing the Criminalization of LGBT People and People Living with HIV, Don't Shoot to Kill, Homicides Resulting from Law Enforcement Use of Force in L.A. County from 2002-14, Real Search Action Research Center, Youth Justice Coalition, and from uh, the bottoms up, Strategies and Practices for Membership-Based Organizations. Finally, Findings and Recommendations from the Youth Empowerment Team, a youth-led research project from the San Francisco LGBT Community Center. Colby completed their BA in International Relations and Women's Studies at Wellesley College, studied and participated at the University of Cape Town African Gender Institute, 
and is currently a Davis Putter Scholar and Ph.D. candidate in American Studies at USC. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Colby Lenz. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's great having you. You're a deity in what you're keeping going. First, Colby, I think it's important that we have you break down the many ways over their entire lifespan that your clients for whom you advocate, they've been victimized. That's abuse as a child, as an intimate partner, the legal system, and even now the immigration institutions. Sure. Yeah, so what we have found um, working with these different grassroots and legal advocacy organizations for decades now is that the women's prisons in California, but also nationwide, are filled with survivors of domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, rape, and other forms of gender violence. And the numbers, we don't have great data on this because people in women's prisons have been under-attended to population in general, so that includes research. But we have numbers from the ACLU that nearly 60% of people in women's prisons nationwide, and uh, as many as 94% in some women's prison populations have a history of physical or sexual abuse before being incarcerated. And we also know from our experience that a huge number, but again, this number is not actually tracked, of people have actually been criminalized directly because of that abuse. So surviving that abuse and then being charged with action, you know, charged for taking survival action, including self-defense, also failure to protect, which is a terrible set of laws that charges survivors for not being able to control their abusers' violence against children, and also for migration, including removing children from abusive people, and they're being charged for that. And then there's all sorts of ways that survivors who are particularly women, including trans women, are charged as accomplice, so-called accomplices. So somebody else, their abuser, commits a violent act, and then they're charged with aiding and abetting. And there are all kinds of problematic laws that facilitate this. So, you know, we've seen just a wild range of, of ways that prosecutors are charging survivors of domestic and sexual violence directly for surviving that violence. And so we have a huge population of people serving life and life without parole sentences for that survival. So with you on that panel that I was so privileged to hear was Ninorn, and she is a very compelling case that I think it's it's an embodiment of what's perpetrated against so many of your clients. Can you sort of map out a bit of her story? She's not available to be participating in today's interview, but I think she is goes a long way to give everyone context of how very, very complicated and how unwieldy the challenges have been throughout her life. Absolutely. Yeah, so Nia... Um was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. Her nationality was Cambodian, but she never had never been to Cambodia. So she, you know, grew up partially in a refugee camp and then in the U.S. in a family that was riddled with domestic violence. And by the time she was a teenager, she ended up in a relationship with an older man who became very abusive and ultimately killed uh, her boss, who he was jealous that she was having a relationship with. And so she didn't go to the police because she was threatened by him that if she did, he would kill him and her family, and she believed it because she had just watched him commit deadly violence. And ultimately, when she did go to the police some years later, they ended up charging her and him as co-defendants, and they used this part of the law where you can charge somebody as an aider and a better 
to first degree murder. And so that's how they, they charged her. And it was a extremely problematic, sexist and racist prosecution where they, they basically tried to claim that she had more responsibility because she couldn't control him. And this is a theme that we see too. And so although she did not harm anybody directly and um, was trying to protect herself and her family from not reporting it sooner and then did the thing of actually reporting it later, she was charged with murder and sentenced to life without parole. And so she had done, you know, during the time of serving life without parole, she continued to seek support in fighting her case, and she was ultimately able to get it reduced to a life sentence in the courts and then have the chance to go up for parole and had to fight to have that chance through parole since domestic violence survivors face discrimination also in the parole process. Because if you do talk about the violence that you experienced as a context for your criminalization, you're often then further punished. They say that you are, you know, not taking responsibility and making excuses and so on. So kind of at each stage of these like critical Reviews. Uh, points of mm-hmm. criminalization, yeah, in the courts, through parole, et cetera. And then because Nia was not a citizen when she was arrested, she lost her status. And she, instead of being released after she was finally granted parole and the, uh, upheld it in the courts, then she was uh, arrested by ICE immigration detention and taken to immigration detention the same day that she was supposed to be released from prison. And then there was a legal fight and a fight, an organizing fight in the streets against ICE to release her from ICE detention and not deport her to to a country where she'd never been and where she was also under threat of violence. And ultimately, um, a judge ruled in her favor and the community, you know, while the community rose up in support, did protests at the ICE office in San Francisco and so on. And so now she is out of detention and, you know, traveling and speaking and doing amazing organizing work for several different organizations. But that's the kind of, you know, her story does show how all of these key points where the criminalization of survivors takes place and all this kind of nexus between policing, prosecution, um, immigration, violence, honestly, and enforcement, and also the amazing resilience and survival of many incarcerated people, despite these just conditions of basically death-making conditions. Well, one one detail about Nia's background, Colby, too, was that she also was witnessing domestic abuse and her family of origin. So it sort of Absolutely. creates a dynamic where she is more vulnerable to a, a, a cunning intimate partner who wants to offer a surrogate for the security she was not feeling as she was being reared. So that's, that's it's sort of like that's the beginning and stumbling in, into these horrible situations where she did not have control uh, in, throughout. So and I want to point out that in Nia's case, too, she's an example of the capacity these women actually have that if they, they could use that capacity if they weren't detained and at every a legal barrier that they are. And she's right now, she's a fellow, it's a Yori Kochiyama fellow at the Asian Americans Advancing Justice, uh, the Asian Law Caucus. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like, there's so much, <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. we're losing out if we're keeping detaining everybody and criminalizing everybody. So that's, mm-hmm. she embodies everything about what's wrong with the system. And you bring up the survivors accused, they're, they're implicated in their abusers' crimes, especially felonies. Uh, so this puts them in that myth of of not being the perfect victim. So how do you how do you get around get ahead of that problem? Mm-hmm. Once somebody is already 
criminalized and 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 not able to access that kind of perfect victim well, category? Is that what you mean? Well, no, they they no longer have that uh, that without being the the perfect victim is what the I guess the legal system is trying to looks to that that figure. And if you don't pass the test of being the perfect victim, then these barriers all you know, I'll pull up in front of them and there is no way to make the nuanced case of, of being overly implicated in crimes perpetrated around them, not because of them. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that the domestic violence and the field of domestic violence advocacy, this is also a problematic area where there's this divide between the so-called kind of good, good victim and the bad victim. And so you're right. As soon as somebody faces prosecution, for something, even if it's not an act that they committed, then they get moved to the category of criminal. And it becomes almost impossible, usually impossible, to convince people in a courtroom, in a parole hearing, in ICE, you know, in an immigration hearing, and so on, that this person is was actually victimized and continues to be victimized then by these state systems, which are actually very violent institutions, such as prisons and detention centers and so on, right? Right. So you have these multiple forms of victimization that continue, and then you're right, it gets harder and harder for people to win, um, to make any wins at any of these different criminalizing institutions because of the narratives built around the good victim, bad victim, and honestly, how a lot of the mainstream domestic violence organizations have reinforced um, those kinds of narratives as well by providing services for those considered, quote, good victims and ignoring people such as criminalized survivors. So that's another piece of the work that that we've been doing is trying to push the domestic violence field of of advocacy services, the anti-violence field, basically, to to pay attention to what happens when survivors are criminalized um, in the courtrooms once they're incarcerated and to refuse this disappearance of survivors that the anti-violence field has contributed to, unfortunately, although, you know, people are starting to to at least question some of their policies that, you know, if somebody has a, if they have to check the box that they have a felony record mm. and they're outside of prison trying to access services, or if they are in the midst of court proceedings that they can't, they, that's an automatic bar from accessing services. That's not true everywhere, but it is true at too many domestic violence service agencies. So trying to change that culture, because all of it just reinforces the violence, right? Yes. And and then exposes survivors to more and more and more violence, because the rates of physical and sexual violence in prisons and detention centers are very high. And we also see those systems as sort of the, the biggest organizers of gender violence. And no surprise, the demographics are overrepresenting women of color in what's another path, another arena of mass incarceration. So over the 14 years, I don't know how many cases you have advocated for, but how, like, Jen, like a figure. And tell us about <laughs> the, that it's it's very skewed toward women of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for white women, it's definitely skewed towards uh, poor white women and disabled people of all races. But for sure, and in particular, black women face I think the the worst battles uh, in the court system to try to battle the the good victim bad victim divide and face some of the the most severe convictions and sentences and that's you know also true for undocumented people and transgender people particularly trans women so you know all of the 
systems of oppression that have been key uh, drivers in our mass criminalization and incarceration problem target you know this very same the same people but i think part of what's often lost in that conversation about mass incarceration is how women black women and women of color um, including trans women are impacted by the system because even though they're you know a smaller number compared to the full population the rates of incarceration for women continue to skyrocket and the sentences continue to get longer for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Kobe Lentz, organizer and legal advocate with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and the Transgender Advocacy Group, visiting people in California's women's prisons for the past 14 years, advocating across the walls to build people's capacity of survival and achieve release. And release, I want everybody to let that sink in. So. You were just uh, getting someone uh, out from under a life without parole conviction. I don't know if you want to map out what you just completed prior to uh, being available for this interview, or uh, you want to speak generally about these sentencing avenues, because the life without parole was considered like relief from a death sentence, but it's it's not so simple. There's there's much larger problems with this this mass incarceration with this legal life without parole. Sure. Yeah, I can speak to Kelly's case and release a little bit and then kind of tie into what we're trying to continue to do, which is to get more survivors released through commutations before Brown is up. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, So basically, so Kelly Savage, after spending 23 years in prison, was finally released from the California prison in Chowchilla last week. And I've been visiting her for for 14 years and fighting for her freedom um, alongside her for 12 of those years with different kind of groups that used to exist but no longer exist, like Free Battered Woman, the California Habeas Project, and a pro bono um, team of attorneys that's changed over time but had been linked up by those groups before they they lost their funding. So Kelly was incarcerated, was criminalized, and then convicted for um, the death of her child who from her previous marriage who was killed by her husband at the time when she was trying to escape his abuse with her children. And so he basically found evidence that she was trying to escape with her children, and she was out of the house doing final arrangements. His violence escalated, and by the time she was home, it was too late. And um, Mm. she was charged with him as a co-defendant. He continued his abuse of her throughout those court proceedings. It's a very common thing that we see when um, survivors and their abusers are tried as co-defendants, is that the court system refuses to separate them or to listen to survivor needs such as, please do not transport us in the van together to the court. Please do not put us in jail cells together while waiting for court hearings and so on. And so she she and him were both sentenced. It's you know, a longer story about how that all went down, uh, full of corruption and terrible defense for Kelly. And so she was sentenced to life without parole, and we've been fighting her sentence for, for 12 years. Wow. And ultimately, you know, um, the courts wouldn't, but even though they acknowledged she was a, a survivor of severe domestic violence and that she did not directly harm her child, they still refused to correct her sentence. And so she, she like Nia, was charged as an aider and a better. Okay. And the standards for that are ridiculous. So that's another thing we need to change in the legislature. 
So ultimately, it wasn't working in the courts, and the attorneys were going to file another appeal, but everybody was feeling pretty despondent about the chances of it. It's very hard to fight a case post-conviction because of what you were talking about before. A person gets this label as a criminal or a murderer, even though um, they did not hurt or kill anyone, and that's about impossible to fight. And so when we learned from women in the women's prisons that there was something coming down the line in terms of commutations, which is also called executive clemency, um, which the governor has the power to do. They started interviewing women who had applied. And this, you know, in my 14 years, we'd never heard of anything like this. And in particular, we started to see a theme that they were interviewing many domestic violence survivors. And so I basically convinced um, our our team, including the legal team, that we needed to apply for Kelly uh, to get her commuted. And so we collectively put an application together and we got it in. We, we very quickly gathered as much support as possible from every community organization and wow. person. They were ready. Yeah. So we, we sent in a big packet and we'd already been doing a campaign to free her for some years. So we had a base, you know, we created another petition for her release. And um, ultimately, she was granted commutation um, from her life without parole sentence, giving her the chance to go up for parole um, this past Christmas. So Christmas 2017, Governor Brown granted her a commutation, dropping her life without to a 25-to-life sentence. And because she'd already served the majority of that time, she was immediately eligible to go up for parole. And so about five minutes later, she went to her first parole hearing. And because, you know, she's been an amazing resource in that prison and has become a powerful domestic violence advocate and trained and supported so many other people who had the chance for relief, she's well loved there and um, but it was still a risk going into parole sure. with the kind of case that she had, right? Right. So we built a lot of support for that, too. She was granted parole, and then you have to wait to see if the governor reverses it or not, which you would think he wouldn't do that after he commuted somebody, but that's happened recently. So oh. we were aware that, that was a risk. So basically, you know, we just took all these different steps alongside Kelly with a big community of supporters, and um, she was finally released last week. So, oh. yeah, wow. so what we've been trying to do in the meantime is, especially with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, is to support as many people as possible to get their applications in during this period of time when Brown has actually been granting commutations. He's granted 82 so far, um, which is unheard of in terms of the numbers that most governors grant during their terms. And 42 of those people were serving life without parole, which is also extremely unlikely because it's one of those sentences that politicians may not have the public support to to commute. So he's been making important moves there, and we've been pushing for him to do many more, knowing what we know about who who's serving these very extreme, basically deaths by incarceration sentences. So we have a lot of people that we are continuing to try to support and hope that before he's out at the end of December that he does a couple more rounds of many commutations. So there, here's where everybody uh, earns their uh, citizens' dues back is where they can contribute to putting this opportunity for Governor Brown to make the most of his final. It's, we're not even down to months. It's final weeks in his office as in his final term as governor of California. So steps here. I mean, I'm going to make sure that we get Rashawn Knight's uh, name out there for people to you know, drop her a note of support because she's she's dealing with this incarceration problem now. But the, what can we first send listeners to doing to importune Governor Brown to act on these victims' behalf before his final term ends? Free them all. Exactly. So we have a site on our Survived and Punished website where we've put a whole set of petitions together so to make it easier for people to 
jump on there and then sign all the petitions that we have up. So these are all survivors of domestic and sexual violence who were criminalized for that survival and who have applied for commutation, have a chance um, in theory, but their chance would increase exponentially the more public support that we could show for their freedom. And so um, we heard in Kelly's case, who who was just released last week, that the governor mentioned in the press release about her commutation that the over 10,000 supporters uh, had signed a petition for her release. And so they they are paying attention to that kind of public support. So we are just begging and pleading for everybody (laughs) and their mother to sign these petitions, circulate them on social media. And so that that site where you can find, I think we have at least six up now. And I will say that that not just Kelly, but many other women and survivors that we've been working with have been commuted, not as many as we need and want, but there's a pattern here. So we want to just put as much friendly public pressure on the governor's office to continue that pattern. And so the um, the website is bit.ly, so it's B-I-T period L-Y, all lowercase, and then backslash, and then free them C-A. So capital F for free, capital T for them, and then capital C, capital A for California. So bit.ly backslash free them C-A, and you can find all the photos of the survivors there and links to their petitions. So you had, it was risky, you said, but everything kept moving in Kelly's right, the positive direction for her, including her model prisoner contributions, I guess. So no one should be deterred that the 10,000 supporters were part of her package. Any one more person is going to add to the momentum to reverse the total misfortunes of these women and getting in on this commutation slash pardon process. Absolutely. It's really, literally, I in the past, I wasn't sure whether, Yeah. you know, I don't know. You never know when you sign a petition how, how much influence that might have. These petitions are making a difference between somebody dying in prison and having the chance to come home and join their families and, and heal from, you know, decades of victimization. So, so yes, I really encourage listeners to, to please sign, even if, yeah, even if it's just you, it will make a difference. Well, I am so pleased to take this opportunity with you because when it the window's going to close on us folks so it's it's this now is the time to give Kobe lens and all that amazing work that you're doing giving you your due now thank you Kobe for being on ask a leader of course thank you so much for having me Claudia my guest was Kobe lens organizer and legal advocate with California Coalition for Women's Prisoners and the Transgender Advocacy Group visiting people in California's women's prisoners prisons for the past 14 years and we are going to free them California with the post I will put on the podcast summary thanks again all the best thank you so much Well, thanks, everybody, for staying tuned. That uh, was the end of my pre-recorded interview with Kobe Lenz yesterday. And I am pulling up that very website, and there are je- there's seven names already on there, the handy URLs to get a hold of speaking on those women's behalf. And there's also Roshan Knight, who is detained at the Women's Correctional Center in Linwood. And I will put that posting on the podcast that I will engineer and have ready for you this afternoon. It's the latest. And just to, so you know, the Linwood Center is at 11705 South Alameda in Linwood, California. An interesting neighborhood we all ought to, you know, check out. So next uh, we're going to have Kristen Renwick-Monroe on to talk about the Me Too movement and some very constructive prescriptions. We'll be right back. Oh, it does.
God, she can't even come to our house, but I know where she'll go. To the place where you can stand and press your hands like it was bubble bath in dust piled high as me. Judith Owens, Cherokee Louise cover of Joni Mitchell's extra classic one. Thank you for staying with us. My next guest, uh, returning after quite the long spell, is Kristen Monroe. She's Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Political Science at UCI, and she's Director of the UCI Interdisciplinary Center for Scientific Study of Ethics and Morality past president of the International Society of Political Psychology, past vice president of the American Political Science Association, former president of the National Women's Caucus for Political Science. Kristen Monroe is the author, editor of over 17 books. I'm just staggered when I read these numbers, and 100 articles. She's received three Best Book Awards for work on altruism and moral choice, as well as several Lifetime Achievement Awards from UCI, the American Political Science Association, and the International Society of Political Psychology. Her latest books are on ethics and economics, Conversations with Kenneth Arrow, with Kenneth Arrow, The Evils of Polygyny with Rose McDermott, and the prize-winning A Darkling Plain, Stories of Conflict and Humanity During Wars. I believe I had uh, two of her students talking about that in an interview some years ago. Chris Monroe's current working projects include, one, Chloe and Nicole, and The Elephant in the Parlor, Essays on Ethics, two, When Conscience Calls, Stories of Moral Courage in an Age of Confusion and Despair, and three, Empowering Women, which addresses gender equality in academia. Kristen Monroe serves as a book review editor for political psychology and mentors the Graeber Scholars as well as the Tobias Fellows at the UCI Ethics Center. After seeing pretty up close some numerous processes, something she's penned so well in a, and is publishing in a new manuscript entitled Ending Sexual Harassment, Protecting the Process of Hashtag Me Too, which is the subject of today's interview. She comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Kristen Monroe. Thank you. So at the outset of this discussion, this interview, we need to post listeners that you will not be bringing up any specific observations about what has taken place at UCI. Those do remain privileged. If we can get close, as close as we can, I'll, I'll look for that opportunity. So first, I, I guess one of the things that strikes me, and I, I have a sort of a fresh observation that corroborates this, is there's always, isn't there, Kristen, there's always this tension an institution has with, between defending itself versus protecting its constituents. And we're always thinking in terms of the employees and the students as a, uh, the protected class. But talk about that tension, because it's, it's always it's difficult to know who's serving whom. Yeah, I, I, I saw that uh, question when you sent me your notes, and I think I'd like to disagree a little bit okay. with it. Um, one of the things that struck me when I was doing the initial work on the book that I'm still working on, Empowering Women, um, I was part of the NSF Advance Grant here at UCI, 
And I also spent some time then later at um, the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. So I interviewed a lot of people here and at Harvard. And one of the most striking um, incidents that I had was uh, talking with Chuck Fest, who had been president of MIT when they had the initial reports. There were two reports that came out that said um, senior women were very unhappy. And he said the worst conversation that he has was when he, he talked with uh, the senior women and some of the junior women, and the junior women said they thought things was getting better, were getting better. And the senior women said that's what we thought, too, when we came out. And his whole attitude was not, gee, I'm, I'm head of a university that has a problem. I have to uh, have fixed it. I have to defend what my administration has done and be on the defensive. Um, his whole attitude was very different than a lot of the other college presidents that I saw. It was more like a doctor. I mean, we have a problem. This is serious. What can you do to help me help you fix this? So I think that, that the idea that the institution needs to defend itself is really not uh, exactly where I, I'd like it to go. I think that bogs us down in adversarial kinds of situations. And I think what you should feel is that it's critical on people who are in an institution who care about that institution to make suggestions, to point out where things are not working in the same way that a doctor would. I mean, or a parent would. If you have a child that gets sick, you don't say, uh, well, you know, I'm defending myself. It isn't my fault that you got sick. You try to do something to fix the situation. Um, so I think that would be the stance that I would hope that uh, college presidents and administrators could take to say, okay, we do have a problem. This is a societal problem. Forget about blame and who caused it. We've got some issues concerning sex and power, and we have to work together to try to figure out the equitable way to deal with them. So that's how I would like people to do. Although I, I just, in the back of my head, I'm thinking how doctors do defensive medicine. So it's sort of like I can mess with that analogy, but uh, yeah. I don't want to over, I don't want to beat that one over too yeah. hard there, but because there's yeah. so much to cover. And so you uh, are telling me in preparation for this that you think UCI is doing a better job than most institutions. Well, I do. I think they're actually, um, I mean, my experience is the farther west you get, the better things are for women in the country. That's oh, a wow. massive overgeneralization, but I think that. Um, there are a lot of places where they're still just sweeping this stuff under the rug. They're kind of, you know, doing lip service. But I think UCI is trying. I think they're not. I think the standard should not be that you're doing better than other places where they're doing it really badly. Uh, I think the standard should always be to try to do to do it better. So and that's why I've tried to focus not on things at UCI. And I appreciate your uh, letting me not speak uh, about specifics at UCI. Um, because I think we don't want to get bogged down to it. We have to take what happened and our experience and learn from it. So you, of course, have to draw on your past experience. But I think what you need to do is, is say, okay, what, what are the things we need to do to make things better? Where are the issues that the universities are just beginning to figure this out? And they're kind of stumbling and struggling to get through it. Um, so I think it's important that we try to say, okay, what are the things that we're doing right? What are those? We need to build on those, and then we need to kind of craft better policies in areas where we need to do a little better job of things like protecting the rights of people involved. 
Well, in your lovely penned manuscript, and I think it's it's still a work in progress. Am I correct? It's it's manuscript. There's still a few more things before uh, it's published. No, it's been accepted. That's, it's so done. I don't know. I mean, there'll be copy editing, but I, that's about it. Okay. I think. So you've made up to eleven recommendations with an eye and ear to particular terms. So let's talk about. You begin with the need to do far more to protect the rights of those involved in investigations of sexual harassment. So Yes, I think that's the first thing that you need to deal with. I think it's really difficult unless you spend a lot of time with women who have had to come forward to appreciate how wrenchingly difficult this is to do. First of all, it takes an incredible amount of time away from what you're, you want to be doing in academia. Most of us are not civil rights and human rights lawyers. We have right. interests that we're concerned with. And it, it then, you know, I mean, ask Christine Blassie Ford about repercussions when you come forward with this sort of thing. This is just, um, it's heartbreaking. And I think you have to, we have to, I mean, I don't know anyone that would blame a woman for coming forward, or a man, because the sexual harassment right. is not just restricted right. to women. But I don't think anybody should blame anybody for raising these issues. It's legitimate. They need to be taken seriously, and they need to have great sympathy for the people who bring them forward. You should not criticize them. But you do have to respect the rights of everybody so that you can have abuse on both sides. You can have a very powerful predator who, um, you know, uses his power to stop an investigation to get things to go away. You can have a woman who is annoyed because a supervisor didn't like her work, and so she raises a claim of sexual harassment that's not true. So you can have abuse on both sides, and I think it's very important that we uh, use due process and set up mechanisms so that everybody's protected. And you have to do this it's, it's a very fine line because there are a lot of issues of confidentiality right. when you get into personnel right. matters. And so that's why I think it's, it's so important that you work out the procedures that protect privacy and keep confidentiality, but also don't use that as an excuse to uh, do a cover-up. I think it was interesting to me to watch the Kavanaugh hearings because Diane Feinstein was criticized for keeping private the letter that uh, Blasey Ford had sent her. And I think that was exactly the right thing to do. If someone asks you to respect the confidentiality, you have to do it. I think the trust is critical here. And people will not come forward if they don't trust people to respect what they are told. And sometimes people do not want to go forward. Sometimes they have situations where they have a family that if the family finds out they've been subjected to sexual harassment, they'll make them pull out of school, which is clearly not what, what you want to have happen. So you, I think that we still need to work very hard to uh, try to protect the rights of everybody who's involved in the investigation. Well, a quick a couple things that come to mind about that, the need, this, the need to do this, the shoulds that, that are in there. If there's political theater that's going to score bigger points for the agenda mm-hmm. there, then with, you know all bets are off with what's ever in place. And the other part about due process failure for me uh, that I'm familiar with anecdotally is that persons feeling maimed by the system more than they did by the offender, and that's a big concern. Yeah. Well, so, that's, I think, if you ask, I mean, I don't know what Christine Blasey Ford yeah, would say, but I'm, I'm thinking that maybe what she went through was worse uh, at the Senate hearing than it was with the actual event. Uh, I mean, really, right. both were traumatic. I'm not downplaying what actually happened or what she says happened. 
but um, she still had death threats. I mean, she still, you know, has protection, may for the rest of her life. I mean, I've talked with women who've brought charges at uh, the Midwest Political Science Association against one of the editors of the journal, and their lives have just been upended by this thing. Um, it's, It's really difficult to go through this kind of thing. You need a very good support system to help you on this. And so another one, we're, I'm not sure we're going to get to cover all the points, but you talk <laughs> about avoiding differential treatment, but uniformity is like how attainable, you know? Well, it is and it isn't. That's, I mean, it's a good question. Yes, you can't specify certain things that are automatically going to happen because I think you have to allow for different cases. Right. But I think if how you treat tenure is a, a good analogy here so that the tenure standards that you have if you're in dance or theater are quite different than the standards you have if you're in physics or political science, which is my field. So, but that doesn't mean you can't still have procedures that are in place to evaluate facts. Um, it doesn't mean you don't specify that, you know, in this department you need, you know, one book. In another department you need five articles or something like that dance, you need to do certain performances, things of that kind. So I think you can uh, try to lay out what is the relevant, what are the relevant criteria in a particular situation. And I think we need to do a much better job than that. I do. And I, I'm going to say anecdotally, and, and Kristen, this is not to put you on the spot. I'll just speak for my anecdotal kinds of observations is that there could be uh, when you're talking about the tenure process, that there could be very dis- or or promotions that yeah. the colleagues are of one mind, and in comes the brass saying this person will get what they're asking for, and it's not and it's counter to what the colleagues had specified. So it's sort of um, that problem looms. I don't think it'll ever get fixed. No, I think that happens a lot of a lot of places. Yeah, okay. but I think it's better if you can minimize it. So um, I don't think you can have, if you have extreme differential treatment, what's going to happen is it's going to hurt the trust. I mean, there's a lot of work in my own research area uh, that says that people have some kind of an innate predisposition yeah. to fairness. Um, they've done experiments, you know, with other mammals, not just human beings. And if one of the, I mean, they've done work with dogs, they've done work with chimpanzees, and if somebody gets treated better than somebody else, they get upset. The rest of the group gets upset. It's and toxic at a point. who's getting preferential treatment gets it. And I don't really think, certainly in terms of gender discrimination in academia, most women don't feel they don't want preferential treatment. They just don't want to have, have treatment that puts them at a disadvantage right. because they are a woman. So I don't think people are asking for preferential treatment. I think they just want to be treated fairly. And that's what we need to be have as our, our model. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Professor Kristen Monroe, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Political Science at UCI and founder and director of UCI Interdisciplinary Center for Scientific Study of Ethics and Morality. We're talking today about the hashtag MeToo movement, striving ever to get into the constructive zone as stay. We're going through uh, some wonderful uh, recommendations she's made in a manuscript. And let's see, I'm trying to figure out, because we're not going to get through all of them unless we fly through them. I think one thing that's got us all scratching our heads, and you bring up that punishments must be proportional and commensurate with the crime. So, yes, that, that's got that everybody was one wondering. of the problems that we had here at UCI with the Ayala case, that people looked at the report when it finally was released, and it just seemed like 
even the charges, the most extreme charges, were things that didn't justify the extreme kind of punishment that was that was given. And I think that's really very, very important. If you have one person who is, um, you know, does X and gets Y punishment, um, and another person who does the same act and gets Q punishment, um, I think that's that's very uh, that's very unfair. It strikes people as bad, and it makes the whole process feel political as opposed to fair. And again, you could see this at the Kavanaugh hearings, that people had different standards. And I think both of the people who were involved lost. Kavanaugh didn't have a chance. They didn't have a thorough enough investigation to clear his good name. They didn't have a thorough enough investigation to clear her good name. Um, And so both of them, in some ways, were uh, besmirched by this whole thing. So I think that you, um, and the whole idea that What's happening a lot is that people resign, and so they say, well, the university didn't actually sanction them. I don't think that's, I think that's a kind of semantics, playing around with words, which I really think is not, not what we want to do. Um, I think you have to be totally honest and fair and open, and if somebody is pressured into resigning, that's, that's a form of sanction. That's not a totally voluntary act. Um, but this is what's happening in most of the cases that I know of, that the person is offered the option to resign rather than being fired, and they usually take it. Uh, and so it kind of, they, you know, there'll be a, an announcement in the paper, like the New York Times when Doug Hibbs at Harvard was, he was basically fired, but the announcement said he resigns after charges of sexual harassment. So that gets the problem to go away for the university, goes away for the people, and it leaves everything somewhat unresolved. So I think to, to say that it's not a punishment when someone is basically forced to resign is not totally accurate. But I do think you have to have um, commensurate um, proportional responses on this. Now, another recommendation of yours is to making public who makes decisions and who decides punishment. That's very important. I think people don't know much about what's going on. No. They don't know what their rights are. They don't know what the situation is. I'm on the peer review committee here, and I've studied this, um, you know, both here and at Harvard. And uh, it's people are confused. They don't know what their rights are. Um, you know, do you need to get a lawyer? I mean, I think there's, for example, the impression that a lot of people who bring the complaint have that the university lawyer is going to be there to help them, and the OEOD officer is going to be there to help them. And I don't think that's true. I think the university lawyer and the OEOD office are there to protect the university. That's my earlier point, though, Kristen. That's what I was talking about, being defending the... That's that's what, yeah. That's right. And as I said, I I would modify that a little bit. Okay. I don't want to get rid of it, but I think that is one of the problems. But that is, in some ways, a problem of communication, making it public, what are the roots, how you go about doing it, and then clarifying that and shaping it so it becomes realistic. So, for example, right now, a faculty member is required by law um, to report anything that a student says. Well, what do you do in a situation where a student comes to you and says, someone is harassing me, he sneaks up behind me and kind of puts his arm around me and kisses the back of my neck, or he's always just making me feel very uncomfortable, but I can't, I can't bring charges because my parents will make me drop out of college if they, you know, they're very conservative. They don't right. uh, like any of this. Well, what do I do in a situation like that? 
I think my obligation should be to the student, not to the university. And so I don't know how you deal with this kind of thing, but clearly you need to work out some better provision because there are a lot of people who don't necessarily want to go through charges right now, but they want to have something filed, so it's there. So I know from the Doug Hibbs case, because Doug was uh, in the same area of political science I was in, I knew some of the other, I knew two of the women who were, the, I think there were six or seven who brought charges, and one, one woman said, it's not going to help me, I'm not going to bring, it's not going to do anything, but I want it to be there, because at some point the university is going to deal with it, and it has to be more than one person before they listen to them. So there's now something, um, I'm going blank on what it's called, but there's a, a trigger mechanism where you can, you can file a complaint and it doesn't go forward unless there are two complaints against the same professor. At that point, they send it to a lawyer um, and a law, uh, group of lawyers who work on this, and they will tell you whether or not you have uh, grounds for legal action, and so they'll help you go forward with it. So I, um, I want to know how that works. I don't know if with your peer review committee work that you can see from that helicopter view downward the details of whether there is, I mean, a victim will have no grasp of how many other victims are in that sphere. Nope, you have no idea. And you so don't you don't know, know whether there. to file because, yeah, so that's, that's a, a real catch-22 then. It is, and I think a lot of people don't know what their rights are as they go forward. I think the accused also have the same problems. They don't know how the system works, and this is clearly something we need to do. We need to just, you know, make it clear. And I think that um, I think at UCI they're trying to do that. I think they're going to try to have the members of the peer review committee go around to the schools in the same way that the members of the Committee on Academic Personnel go around right. to the different schools and have an information session. So I think that's one way to see them responding to this kind of criticism. But that's a positive thing. You know, say, instead of, you know, becoming defensive and saying, oh, no, everybody knows, they said, okay, maybe we need to work on this better, and this is what we've come up with, and so we'll see how this works for the next couple of years. Because um, I think that's, that's what I'm saying initially, that a university shouldn't defend itself automatically. They shouldn't say, oh, no, we know, everybody knows. It's there in the Senate handbook. Well, the Senate handbook is, like, I don't know how many pages. It's very confusing. It's very hard to, um, you know, it's very hard to understand it unless you're a lawyer. So I think that this is a good example that you try of how there has been a criticism made of the administration and how they've responded very positively. And I hope that will make it clearer to everybody, the women and men who want to bring forward charges and the people who are accused, because everybody should know what their rights are and, and what they can and can't do. Because otherwise, it's too easy to make bad decisions which are affecting your life. Right. And so how about then, I'm going to combine several recommendations. It gets sure. to the the parties directly involved and in preparing for this. You've talked about your own experience. You're an outlier, I consider. I've told you this already, that in, in terms of how you've been reared, advantages that you were equipped with to push back at every pass, and it's happened to you in, over your career. But you, you talk in your recommendations about empowering women, avoiding treating them as helpless, let them, letting, equipping them. But this is like a this is an acculturation that goes on since their childhood, as well as preparing young people to handle yeah. sexual harassment when it does occur and educating mainly men, because men, women are mainly the ones at the receiving end of this perpetrating there, but yeah. educating them about what constitutes 
sexual harassment. So um, that th those are a lot of cultural things that have to p take place way before they start their applications to college. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that at the bottom, this is a cultural problem. How do we deal with women? And I mean, I think men. About after we had our kind of conversation the other day, yes. I can remember my dad when I think I was in first or second grade. There was a bully who was hitting me on the bus and to school, and and he sat down with me and said, "This is how you deal with bullies." And it was very interesting. It wasn't you hit back. It wasn't. He said, "You know, if he hits you, just stick out your hand and say, do you want to hit me again?'" And you'll shame him into not doing it. And I think a lot of times humor works really well with bullies. Uh, and sexual harassers. I know I was the first woman in one department, we'll leave it nameless, and we all ate lunch together. It was a very friendly department, but one of the guys was always telling kind of off-color jokes, and at one point one of the other professors said to me, how do you feel when he tells these stories? And I could hear the room go quiet, oh. <laughs> and I thought what my mom would say, and I just said, oh, I just consider the source, and that was the end of it. Nobody ever said anything, to, you know, told any off-color jokes and said, the other thing, though, sometimes it just have to be really, really honest, which I think is something, again, I learned from my parents. And you tell somebody, I don't find you sexually attractive. Leave me alone. Um, that's really important. I remember when I was in school in Paris, they were trying to tell us about French culture, and one of the uh, professors said, these are three phrases that you say to people if they come up and, you know, are coming on to you in the assembly. And the first was very polite, and the second one was, you know, go away, and the third one was something she said, you don't say in polite conversation. And I think since all of this has come up, I've started telling, you know, my, I have a 24-year-old daughter, I have a lot of female students, I'm very close to graduate students and undergraduates, and I said, if anybody does certain things, you know, if they don't stop, slap them in the face, yell at them, kick them, do something, because you have to let them know they can't get away with this stuff with you. So I think we need to empower women to think of themselves not as victims, but as targets, because I think the whole idea of victimhood uh, is something that we fall into, that women need to be protected. They can't take care of themselves. And I know this is a little controversial, but I heard an interview with a woman who had been sexually abused when she was a high school athlete, and it wasn't until she was in her 50s that she talked about it, but she's now done a movie about it, and she said, it's very important that we focus things not on how to protect these women, but what was it you did that allowed you to survive this? You had a strength. Let's develop that strength. What was the strength that got you through this and helped you get out of it? And I think that's a slightly different kind of approach than uh, one where I don't want us to go back to the idea that women need to be protected. We all need to have friends to help us, and we all can take strength in working together. That, I think, is very important. But I don't like the idea that women are a weaker category that need to be protected. I think we're very strong, and we and that's what you have to do in academia. You have well, to we, Kristen Monroe, we have to leave it on that note. There are more other recommendations, and there's, there's ways to project this forward, but we are totally out of time. I want to thank you, Kristen, for your time. It's been really helpful. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. My guest was Professor Krista Monroe, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of California at Irvine here, and founder and director of UCI Interdisciplinary Center for the Scientific Study of Ethics and Morality. Today we talked about her manuscript, uh, Me Too Movement, and prescriptive ways to constructively proceed. I'm uh, going to wrap this right now.
black and brown fighting together on the day I'm always... Next week, I've got quite the Thanksgiving feast ready for all of you. Jose Antonio Vargas, journalist and activist, will be my guest in the first segment about his new book, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen and his Define American campaign. Then Patricia Martz will return to the show, joined by Alfred Cruz, Jr., an octogenman descendant to unearth Native American culture in our midst. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day while my people are hunt down like prey.